Dolphin Dolly. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 347. This will be the second part of a possible three-part eugenics run that Jason and I began on 344, I believe. Uh, anyhow, Jason is with me and Wayne McCroy is with me. Uh, welcome, Jason. And good morning. All right. Do we have anything? I feel like we're running as fast as we can all the time. You know, I think we are. Yeah. All right. Welcome, Wayne. Hi, guys. Good to be back. All right. I guess we're going to do this uh, Eugene thing here. And since we're in hour one, we'll do what we got to do. Uh, we can open up both barrels in the second hour. Um, let's just do it, Jason. All right. Picking up from where we left off, the Second Eugenics Congress originally scheduled to take place in New York in 1915, met at the American Museum of Natural History in New York on September 25th through the 27th, 1921, with Henry Fairfield Osborne presiding. Alexander Graham Bell was the honorary president. The State Department mailed the invitations around the world. Under American leadership and dominance, 41 out of 53 scientific papers, the work of the eugenicists disrupted by World War I in Europe was to resume. Delegates participated not only from Europe and North America, but also from Latin America, including Mexico, Cuba, Venezuela, El Salvador, and Uruguay, and Asia as well, Japan, India, and Siam. The major guest speaker, Major Darwin, advocated eugenic measures that needed to be taken, namely the elimination of the unfit, the discouragement of large families in the ill-endowed, and the encouragement of large families in the well-endowed. The average young American male composite statue created by Jane Davenport Harris was exhibited during this Congress and again at the third as visual representation of the degeneracy of the white male body that would continue if advised eugenic measures were not taken. So this opening paragraph echoes so many of the things that we've done, Jason. If people go back to James Shelby Downard's work, um, you're going to see that what's basically happened is no different than what's going on now. We're all faced with you do these things that a lot of people don't want to do, or you're going to lose work, going to lose services. Look at the people in 1921. Alexander Graham Bell, did he invent one of the services we all require? I guess we, we carry his services in our pocket now, um, but he was the honorary president. And who's mailing things? The State Department. And of course, if you picked up from the last episode we did, Major Darwin is a relative of Charles Darwin. So. When you begin to fairly assess what's gone on here, you can roll it right up to where we exist now. Uh, all the services that are run by these big corporations, they control a lot of our world, and that gives a hell of a lot of power. And it wasn't too far from true in 1921. We live in a much different world, but I'm just saying, look who was there. Wayne? Yeah, man. When you look back 100 years ago at uh, you know this point we were just making there, and you could see... Uh, some of the names involved with this, well, these are still names that are relevant today. And uh, I, I would point out that not only was this Major Darwin a relative of Charles Darwin, but also of Sir Francis Galton, who actually is the one that coined the term in the modern era of eugenics. And uh, the, the term eugenics actually comes 
uh, back from uh, ancient Greece, from the, the works of Plato. Uh, and in Plato's Republic, he talked about uh, racial hygiene. And uh, that's where the term eugenics came about. So like some of these ideas are far older than just the modern era, but it's just the direction these people have taken things in the modern era that's made it really, really uh, poignant here. Uh, so that being the case, you could see they, they play their little games here all the time. Uh, they're holding these different congresses and stuff like that. And uh, all your major players are, are there, like Alexander Graham Bell, like, you know, uh, and all of these other people that are associated with uh, the uh, government and quasi-government agencies and, and places like uh, uh, these different think tank groups that, that run things. Uh, so you can see how they steer agendas in this way and how they put forward these ideas. Uh, and they're talking about uh, eugenics here, and they, they base it largely upon uh, the white uh, race being the, the one that they want to preserve and the other ones uh, they want to try to phase out. And that's the direction that they were going at that time. And, and it's been 100 years since this second Congress that they held here uh, for the eugenicists. And look what's going on today. Uh, you could see that they, under the auspices of different measures and things like that, uh, they're still proceeding with these ideas that they want to put forward, but they're just going about it in a different way than what they were in the beginning there. They, they were pretty outspoken there in the beginning about it until they really got a lot of notoriety from the events of World War II. Then the eugenicists kind of shut up a little bit and tried to keep things uh, a little bit more quiet. But they, they were pretty open with their eugenics ideas at that time in the 1920s. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, they've kind of gone covert uh, since the uh, events of World War II and... Uh, They've still been active in the modern world, no doubt about it. Uh, so, you know, the things we see today are a reflection of these much earlier ideas that were put out 100 years ago by these people. It's just they've taken it to a more active status right now than what they did then. A lot of it then was more speculative and, and planning type measures they were taking. And now they're, they're really going for it and rolling it out in the modern era. Yeah, I mean, very very few people, well, look, look at it this way. The ideas back then were a government of the people, by the people, for the people, and we see the exact opposite going on. And it's like you say, how many people were even aware of this? This shows the power of media. What were they reading in the papers? How did they know what they knew? Uh, point is, is where is this authority derived from? Simple question. You can even go to a place like the Vatican, and they're going to spend all this effort to tell you that they derive their authority from St. Peter. They're going to have a whole tale on why they have the authority. What's going on here is something totally different. And by the way, to draw a line in hour one, um, do people know what Thanos' surname is? It's Eugene, to make a terrible pun, but you need to understand what we're talking about. Uh, when did we first meet Thanos? 2019? Anyhow, Jason. The Virginia Sterilization Act of 1924 was a U.S. state law which greatly influenced the development of the eugenics movement in the 20th century. The act was based on model legislation written by Harry H. Laughlin and challenged by a case that led to the United States Supreme Court decision of Buck v. Bell, in which the court ruled that a state statute permitting compulsory sterilization of the unfit, including the intellectually disabled, for the protection and health of the state, 
did not violate the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Since the Supreme Court upheld the law, it proved that it was constitutional and made it a model law for sterilization laws in other states. Justice Holmes wrote that a patient may be sterilized on complying with the very careful provisions by which the act protects the patients from possible abuse. Between 1924 and 1979, Virginia sterilized over 7,000 individuals under the act. The act was never declared unconstitutional. However, in 2001, the Virginia General Assembly passed a joint resolution apologizing for the misuse of a respectable scientific veneer to cover activities of those who held blatantly racist views. In 2015, the Assembly agreed to compensate individuals sterilized under the Act. This is what I don't like about Hour One. There's things that need to be said here, and those things relate directly to what Jason was just talking about. So we could ask the question if there was a supposed law that was approved all the way to the same uh, Supreme Court in 24 was in full swing, was challenged, and the Supreme Court still upheld. No, you can do whatever you want to those people. It must not work, right? This is their solution, and yet eugenics never ends or pulls back. But listen to this part. This is the key part where I have to weave a thread speaking in the hour that I'm speaking. However, in 2001, the Virginia General Assembly passed a joint resolution apologizing. Well, why? You know, because it was wrong. And so what it shows is that the Supreme Court backed this for whatever reason they backed it. And when it finally gets enough attention or modernity, whatever the reason is, they apologize for it. But think of what's not written here. You could almost hear the wheels turning. Well, you know, we'll, we'll apologize for these things we did. There must be some way we can get people to volunteer to do this. If you're following what I'm laying down. Yeah, I'm following what you're laying down. This 1924 law that was passed that sterilized over 7,000 individuals there in Virginia. This is completely and totally unethical. And I, I will maintain to this day, anytime you see any of these government or quasi-government think tank groups coming together and forming a quote-unquote ethics committee, it's because they plan on committing some type of atrocity against humanity, and they're just looking to find ways to justify this action that they want to take. It's not actually to discuss whether this is ethical or not. They know inherently what they're doing is not ethical but they're just looking for justifications and excuses to do it. And thus they will turn around later and apologize for these naughty things that they did in the past and continue to do today. And that's the thing. That's more, that's more of the cover story here. They came out in 2001 and said, Oh, we're sorry for all this bad stuff we did for that 55 year span between 1924 and 1979. And, uh, you know, then it says later here in 2015, uh, they agreed to compensate individuals that were sterilized under this act. Well, how many of those people were still alive? How many people wound up getting compensation for that? No children, right, Wayne? Right. And they have no children, so they have no inheritors or anything like that. So this is very disingenuous on the face of it. I mean, it, it, it's all a ruse. It's all for playing the saving face game. You know what I'm saying? That That's the way these people operate with this stuff. And this went on until 1979. That's a rel relatively recently in the modern era when you think about it. And some other states, I think, were still uh, uh, using some of these eugenics laws 
even later than that, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember from some of the reading and stuff I've done on it. But uh, it, it's it's not right. And you could see how they, they took this all the way to the Supreme Court. And of course, they, they go through this whole rigmarole of where they talk about, oh, well, you know, does this violate the Constitution? And then they come up with these little loopholes for ways that it doesn't violate the Constitution. So then the Supreme Court holds this act up and, um, you know, it, it creates that uh, that precedent. And, and that's the whole thing with the legal world. They don't really care about looking at the original laws or the Constitution or anything like that. They care about the precedent that's set by other judges. So once this precedent gets set, then other judges look at it and say, oh, well, there's the precedent. So I'm going to do what the precedent says, rather than going back to the original law and interpreting the intent of the law. They don't do that. Instead, they'll hold up the precedent. So you see how this turns into uh, a whole can of worms in and of itself. Uh, and this is the go along to get along game. And they all play it. They all play it. Everybody in these positions of uh, power within uh, government and quasi-government agencies, they they hold up these precedents and use that as their justification for doing wrong things. And I will, I will, you know, continue to say that anytime you see anything about an ethics committee or, you know, these kind of things, they already inherently know they're doing something wrong and they're just looking to save face uh, with their justifications of this. And, you know, if they weren't doing wrong, would they have to turn around later and apologize? I don't think they would or offer compensation. No, that's not how it works. So you know that they know that they're doing wrong and they're just looking for any way to get away with it that they can because they have something else in mind uh, for this whole thing. And it's not about the quote unquote purity of the race or anything like that or the health of the people. And that's the big guys that they use even unto this day. It, oh, it's all about public health. It's about the health and the well-being of the people. No, it really doesn't have anything to do with that, folks, because if it did, uh, they wouldn't violate ethical uh, considerations to do things like this. And they, they, clearly they have done so in the past. I mean, we're looking at the history of it right now. And we, we all know where this eventually leads here. I mean, we're getting up to the, the 1930s now in the notes, but uh, we know where it goes from there if we've studied history at all. Well, there, there's another side of this. And maybe I'll talk a little more about it in an hour or two because the double barrel shotgun has pointed at us nonstop now. But consider, how would I even say this? If you look at the world based on all the eugenics and other shows that we've researched, you can see that what they view as inferior is now being promoted. Keep this in mind as Jason reads the next bullet point. Um, think of all the shifts that have happened when America made everything it needed and it made the best things that were going out in the world and how that was all dismantled. Now almost everything is built in China. Bear in mind when Jason opens up the actual view of one of the countries that was at the eugenics conference that we just stated, so you know their, what their mind is, um, but it goes further than that. People complain about silly things like movies, like, oh, that that beloved hero was supposed to be a man or that beloved hero is a white guy or that beloved hero all these things it all relates to the same thing they have an idea that some races are controllable and that's going to play in to the notes that we get into here in 1931 the japanese invade manchuria seeing the chinese as an inferior race the invasion began on September 18, 1931, when the Kwantung Army of the Empire of Japan invaded Manchuria 
immediately following what was called the Mukden Incident, a false flag event that was staged by the Japanese military as a pretext for the invasion. At the end of the conflict in February of 1932, the Japanese established the puppet state of Manchukuo. Their occupation lasted until the success of the Soviet Union and Mongolia with the Manchurian Strategic Offensive Operation in mid-August of 1945. So they're not the only ones who play the false flag game, eh? The old old ones are the good ones, right? The old the oldies but goodies work every time you do it. It's a bit like politics, the race card. Um, right now, uh, pedophilia, that'll get you some real traction to do things like Apple is doing right now, saying because of pedophilia, they have the right or they're going to have the right to go into your images and your cell phone in your pocket. But this is the thing. You know, when, at what point do we wake up? This is known to be a false flag incident. It's remembered in his, history, however it actually went, as one of the most brutal invasions you can imagine. I'm taught about this because of the Boxer Rebellion and other things when I'm in the Marine Corps. But go look at a map. Look how tiny Japan is. Look how giant China is. And do a similar thing with the British Empire. Look how tiny that little island is where they're coming from. And look how big an area it is over the world. And when you comprehend what we're told went on back then with these tiny places taking over major parts of the world. Now refocus your eyes on what's going on in our world today. I mean, what would you add, Wayne? Uh, I would add once again, you see this whole concept here. I, I mean, it was a false flag that kicked this whole thing off there. And isn't this synonymous with the, the disingenuous nature of ethics committees and ethics concerns? It's the same kind of thing. Like they, you know, they, they just, come up with a reason to justify the actions they want to do that they know inherently are wrong, but they want to do it anyway. So they come up with this justification. Well, a false flag can be used as a justification, and it has been. And uh, historically, like you said, the oldest tricks are the best tricks. And, uh, you know, once again, it shows right here in this bullet point uh, how they utilize the false flag operation type narrative as a means of doing something unethical that they want to do, and they use it as a justification to do it. Uh, so once again, you could see that whole thing. And, uh, you know, uh, when you do look at the size of some of these uh, places that uh, do these kind of things, they're, they're relatively small uh, starting out, and they invade much larger territories like the, the British Empire and like the Japanese here, as we're talking uh, about in the bullet point. So um, and all these things always relate to these eugenics ideas because, you know, it's all about territory and, uh, you know, which is the the ones that should be in control. It, it has to do with elitism at the heart of it all. These people, they feel that they're the elites of the world and they have the divine right to rule. And uh, doing so, they, they want to uh, reproduce themselves, but keep down uh, the numbers of the other quote unquote races or however they view it now. Um, so it, it really, at the end of the day, it boils down to, it's a very small group at the top of the power structure here that pushes these ideas and is really looking for something a little bit different than what is presented in the public view of, uh, what is, uh, this, this racial idea and things of that nature and, and eugenics. They're looking for something different. They're looking for something more specific. And, you know, we may touch on that a little bit more later. 
uh, and it has to do with bloodlines uh, when it comes down to it. So um, other than that, I don't think I have much more to add uh, to that bullet point uh, other than, you know, just the fact that this is always the way that they do things that they know are unethical. They'll come up with a justification for it and do it anyway. One of the things we tend to do is we're very myopic. We look at the thing we're looking at now and never relate it to the other things we already know. Earlier in the opening of this episode, we showed that Japan was one of the countries that was at the eugenics conference in 1921. So that tells you that they're on board with what's going on at the eugenics or they're part of it. Later, they say, 10 years later, to be exact, that Chinese are inferior. So we're going to invade them. Again, it's recorded as one of the most brutal things you can imagine, regardless of whatever the truth or non-truth may be. We know they were invaded. So how is it that if these organizations that have been here since 1921 feel like Chinese as an example or inferior race, why did all the making of everything get shifted over to China? This is about control, isn't it? Well, I'm sure it's all for the greater good of the state, right? Yeah, but I mean, even at that point, you know... 20 years ago, we probably would have said yes to that, but the, the state of the country no longer matters, right? They're, everyone gets thrown under the bus at this point. So it's you know maybe a little closer to what Wayne stated, a very small group of people, but it seems like there is no allegiance per se to any border or boundary. And that also points to the idea that maybe there's a realm here that we know very little of the land masses that actually exist, or who knows? We can all guess all day long, but the main takeaway is these people involved in the eugenics decided the Chinese were inferior, and then they turned around and they moved the making of everything to China. Think about the strategic idea behind that. Right. And they, they may view this as, okay, well, this is the inferior race, so we'll just use them for you know basic production needs and, and stuff like that. That's why they transferred the manufacturing there. Uh, that may play into this type of idea. That may be what they're thinking is as far as it goes with the uh, eugenics line of thought. So same thing happened, Wayne. And, and after World War II, there was a period that I was still alive as this ended. All this stuff made in Japan that we joked about because it was inferior to the American quality we were used to, a lot of it. Now look at the difference between how someone views things made in Japan when they were just recently supposedly beaten in a war to where they stand now on the world stage. You know, what is it? Uh, you know, it's 10 years or something after World War II. We're best buds again with Japan. But the point is people are old as I am. Remember seeing that made in Japan thing stamped on crap that we basically made fun of because it didn't stand up to the quality of things that were made in America. And now look what Japan is doing. Uh, they're not, you know, all the stuff made in Japan is high tech now. It's not laughed at, but the manufacturing of the things they were manufacturing after World War II, like toys and every other little thing that's shuffled off to China now. It's almost like you can suppose where a country is in the run of things by what's being manufactured there. Right. And I, I'm picking up what you're putting down there. Definitely. It's like they, they put the lesser quality goods off on uh, the, like the larger market there, like China, and they make the high quality stuff in Japan now. And we see that across the board with these other nations that signed into this whole eugenics type idea. Oh, this is just the, you know, the basic low level crap that's for the masses out there. And then they make the good stuff at the, the ones that uh, view themselves at the top of the eugenics tree here. Uh, so this is where the quality products come from. 
And, and this is one, once again, it ties with the, this whole idea uh, that they do have about themselves being superior in some way, shape or form. So it seems to me that after World War II and into the 1950s, uh, the shift of focus with the uh, with Japan turned into uh, what they would view as like the um, I don't know how to say this. I don't want to like uh, say anything in hour one that's going to get us booted from YouTube or something like that. But uh, it, it's it's one of those things where they've kind of taken Japan at this point and elevated them uh, above like uh, some of the other areas in Asia at the time. So they're saying, okay, well, the, this Japanese race, so to say, uh, they have the superior products and stuff there in the superior culture over these ones. So they put them up on this pedestal uh, that's almost equal with themselves. And those being uh, most of the uh, the ones that would see themselves as the uh, Northern European type bloodlines and stuff like that. Uh, so they, they kind of elevated them and said, well, they're a step above. So, you know, they get all the good manufacturing and all the good quality products there. Whereas uh, just the common everyday person stuff gets manufactured in this other region. So, it, it, you know, all these ideas, it's very convoluted. And these people are like demented when it comes down to it. I, I can't think of my fellow human beings in that way without like retching at the thought of it. But this is how they think. And I think it's important that we understand the thinking process of these people that really uphold these eugenics ideas, because this is what they believe. And they are, you know, in places of power in this world and they institute their different agendas and uh, things and strategies based upon these ideas. So it's important that we get in their head as, as sickening as it is. Uh, but this is the way they think. So it, it would appear to me that that's kind of what they did in that case here. Two things. It's clear where Japan stands, but it's also clear where they always stood before the supposed world wars. They were invited to the table to the eugenics conference. But think about this. When Japan was making all this stuff that America made fun of, what it basically meant was you got to make this crap and the payment you get for making it has to be very low because after it's made there, it has to be shipped all over the world. So you can almost see that the manufacturing of general goods, widgets, or whatever it might be, a hammer, um, if a country is saddled with that, it almost is, by definition, a guarantee that the wage will always remain low. Think about it. So Japan had to shuffle off that manufacturing sector, and they immediately got into electronics and other things. Then they immediately started making cars that were at first, nowhere near what America was doing. And now you can't find a car that's basically American. It's the parts come from anywhere. But just to see everything being made in a place is almost like a saddle that guarantees that most of the labor market will be held at a very low pay state. The joke about Japanese manufacturing was actually made in the third Back to the Future movie. Those movies are just the gift they keep on giving, aren't they? Well, they, you know, it's, it's Omniview, isn't it? But let's, let's push on. Let's try to get a little more concise here, gentlemen. I want to squeeze a little bit more into our one here. I do want to make the point that in today's world, the Japanese are seeing a massive decline in their population, whereas with China, they're having the opposite. Key point, but we're also told that China was trying to limit births to one male or something like that, whatever the story is. And we know to some degree that was going on. There are also rumors that they were putting stuff in the water to help sterilize. But uh, the point you made about Japan there, they are the poster child for the loss of birth rate to the point where what you and I found 
that we're reasonably sure is correct would say that that is a culture that has declined below the 2.5 rating on birth rate that has never been recovered from. And as I've said so many times, go look at these shows like Cycling in Japan, uh, Food in Japan. There's a bunch of PBS ones. And time and time again, you're seeing a village in decline, no children around. It's, it's openly known. So now you've got to go back and say, wait a minute, these guys were in 21 doing the eugenics thing. And they're in the G8 and they're elevated close to the top of most countries that are in our world. What's going on here? Jason, do you remember the RH show? Do you remember the rating of RH negative in Asian countries? It's less, I think it's less than 2%, isn't it? Less than 2%. So what are we looking at here, guys? I mean, it's almost like you're these elite people have a family of five and they're willing to feed three of them to the beast or something. It's quite, it's quite a thing. The third Congress was arranged at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, August 22nd through 23rd, 1932. It was dedicated to Mary Williamson Averell, who had provided significant financial support and was presided once again by Davenport. Osborne's address emphasized birth selection over birth control as the method to better the offspring. F. Ramos from Cuba proposed that immigrants should be carefully checked for harmful traits and suggested deportations of their descendants if inadmissible traits would become later apparent. Major Darwin, who was now 88 years old, was unable to attend, but sent a report presented by Ronald Fisher predicting the doom of civilization unless eugenic measures were implemented. Ernst Ruden was unanimously elected president of the International Federation of Eugenics Organizations. The Congress published a decade of progress in eugenics, scientific papers of the Third International Congress of Eugenics. A Fourth International Eugenics Conference was not convened. The IFEO held two more international meetings, one at Zurich in 1934 and the last one at Scheveningen in 1936. In 1932, Hermann Joseph Muller gave a speech to the Third International Eugenics Congress and stated, Eugenics might yet perfect the human race, but only in a society consciously organized for the common good. Uh, these people really love the concept of a Superman, don't they? It's... It's a bit beyond the pale, and I guess I'll waste my time to point out that IFEO is a verbatim 9-11 code. But you see, the whole premise of what we're talking about here and the idea of eugenics flies in the face of any natural science that's ever gone on. From my point of view, we know damn well that it matters because we know damn well that the principles of air, water, fire, and earth are not only sound, but they drove this world for the majority of time human beings have been anywhere in the driver's seat and they've been utilized in things like spagyrics that prove flat out. I can take a thing and break down to body, soul, and spirit. This works. This is provable. There it is. What we're looking at here is people kind of, it's almost like saying, okay, a God created this place. There's a God out there. Everybody created this place, but man, did he make a lot of mistakes and we're his creation, but we can do a better job than he can now. So what we're going to do is we're going to ignore all the operating procedures that have been demonstrated work and are true and are provably there. And we're going to try to impose all this artificiality. 
And I don't know how else to put that in hour one. I mean, what would you add, Wayne? Uh, I, I would think it, it kind of speaks to their hubris as well. Like the fact they think they could do a better job than the creator at this whole idea. And they see themselves as, as doing this for the quote unquote common good. And don't we, they use that as a justification for many of the things that they do? I mean, look at what's going on today for the common good, the public health. Uh, you know, they, they use these same ideas and uh, it's it all ties to these eugenics ideas once again. And that being the case, it's, you know, just one of those things where you really have to question what is the real motivation behind it? Because it's it's not what they say on the surface. They are thinking in terms of the common good and their idea of the common good is different from our idea of the common good. And the last bullet point we covered uh, with the Japanese races and things of that nature kind of really tell the tale, don't they? Uh, because we see that those are, are racial stocks that are in decline in this world, as we've discussed, you know, in the different uh, population studies and stuff we've looked at. Uh, so, you know, you, you could see what it is they're doing. And even though they've taken uh, some of these other groups and put them up on this pedestal, well, they're, they're still pulling the eugenics tricks on them, aren't they? Uh, so that being the case, you, you could see the direction this is going and the ones that are actually running it. So, you know, it's all about dwindling down these populations. And uh, I, I don't know what more I can say about that in hour one, because like I said, I mean, we, we have to unfortunately play the game if we want to reach as many ears as possible here now. That's the facts, Jack. But I would point out another thing, too. Um, in thinking about the things that we speak about, it is very helpful to have a very wide field of view and relate things you already know to things you're currently learning and projections and all these things. Uh, things do not happen in a vacuum. Here's another tell that I noticed years and years ago. Go look at places that have the UNESCO World Heritage protections that are attached to them. Read a little bit about what that means when a place, oh, you make silk kimonos and that was historically important. We're going to give you UNESCO heritage. It's not just the heritage type things, but there are also things like, oh, there's this beautiful mountainous area that's almost pristine, or there's something that we perceive as special. We'll give this UNESCO protections. Go look at what that is about because it relates directly to what we are talking about. In other words, there's a bomb coming, but it would be pretty poor planning if we didn't plan to not blow this thing up with our bomb. Hint, hint. Yeah, you, you see that all, all the way around with a lot of these ideas. And uh, UNESCO is a great example of that because they set up these heritage uh, sites or whatever it is that they call them. And then they keep those separated from the rest of like everything within the rest of the countries or wherever, where it's at, and they, they hold it up as a national landmark or something like that. So it gets extra protections and people aren't allowed to do certain things at those sites. So, you know, they do this for a reason and uh, it all relates back to these eugenics ideas. Once again, it's, it's sad to say, but so much has been built on the foundation of eugenics in the modern era. And many of these uh, organizations throughout the world that allegedly do these good, righteous things like the UNESCO group that uh, puts aside these heritage foundation places and things like that, these sites uh, for the you know public view of uh, saving this uh, pristine natural wonder or whatever it is. Well, they, they have ulterior motives for that. And that's, that's the way a lot of these places roll. And a lot of them are under the auspices of the United Nations like UNESCO is. 
Well, think about the normalization, even of the ideas that we're talking about that could never be normalized. Every time they came to light, there was apologies and we'll pay all the children you never had and all this stuff going on to try to cover the barbaric tracks that we can no longer accept in the modern era. Now think about Endgame. That's normalizing the idea of eugenics at the highest level. How, you might ask? Well, first of all, it's entertainment. But secondarily, the idea is nobody's safe. I don't care if you're a king, a queen, or a guillotine. You're going to be eligible to be half of everything that goes away. As a matter of fact, it's not just human beings. Half of all life is what's being said there. And this is the normalization of these ideas. I'll say it again. Uh, go look up Thanos and find out that his uh, surname is Eugene. Of course, that's a joke, but not really. No, it's not. And uh, that actually ties to a key uh, archetypal mythological idea, the, the idea of Thanatos. Uh, and that's where they got it from. They, they always draw upon these same type archetypes for their, their different things there. So uh, maybe we could explore that a little later. I'm not sure how much of that you explored in the first eugenics show you did here, but uh, we could probably explore those ideas more later. You'll see it on the tail. We did a short conversation on the tail, but think about also what's going on. Anyone who takes the time to waste their life to think about the nuts and bolts of things like Endgame would also understand that you were informed, oh, time travel doesn't doesn't work that way. So every timeline that got started, they act like, oh, we won. We got everyone. No, sorry. There's a timeline out there where everyone's gone. There's, a, there's all these timelines they create, and that too subconsciously is recognized by most human minds. It's just that your conscious mind isn't picking it up. And that is a normalization too. In other words, your conscious mind is saying, oh, good. We won guys. We beat the bad guy. We got everybody back. Sorry. They told you verbatim that every timeline that got started would be a timeline of its own. In other words, there were way more screwed up timelines left than the one you were left staring at. And that too is a normalization subconsciously. 1933 through 1938. Following the appointment of Adolf Hitler as German Chancellor on January 30th, 1933, the Nazi state, which was also referred to as the Third Reich, quickly became a regime in which citizens had no guaranteed basic rights. The Nazi rise to power brought an end to the Weimar Republic, the German parliamentary democracy established after World War I. In 1933, the Third Reich is said to have established the first concentration camps where the Nazis imprisoned its political opponents, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others classified as dangerous. Extensive propaganda was used to spread the Nazi Party's racist goals and ideals. During the first six years of Hitler's dictatorship, German Jews felt the effects of more than 400 decrees and regulations that restricted all aspects of their public and private lives. The majority of these policies were driven by eugenics notions. And there's a problem with everything we just said, because history is a lie agreed upon. And this is a thing where if you choose to talk about it in one way, you'll be ended online. I've actually openly been warned uh, more than once that if you take the wrong side of this conversation to explore what might be true or what not, it can end you. And I believe it, by the way, because of the people who told me. Um, but here's the thing. If you really want to honestly look at this, so many of the things that were supposedly done and commiserated about after the fact under the supposed Third Reich, that's a lot of threes, 
1933, January 303rd, right? Just three, 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 threes coming out my ears. But all these things that we commiserate and say we didn't like, we can show that the bankers were funding both sides of this coin. And you could almost view all these things we're told about as a normalization. And again, the banks at any time for a logical mind could have ended this. They could have said, we're not funding war anymore, guys. But at the end of the day, let's ask the simple question. Was there a central bank in Germany before World War II? Was there after? So we have no need to go back and argue about the particulars because in the current environment, that can end you very quickly. Let's just look at what we can talk about, like banking. And that is a huge tell. But I would estimate that all the things that are looked at backwards in shame and derision are not a lot different than what's going on in the world now that people don't like. And maybe not so much because part of what we're told went on is pretty extreme. But my point is, is if everything going on in the world right now goes to some conclusion that we see, what will the world be like? Will it resemble more like the supposed Third Reich we've been told about? Or will it resemble 1976 America? I'm just saying, man. Yeah, another interesting uh, thought there that uh, you kind of brought to my mind. Uh, You're talking about the Third Reich, 1933. That's a lot of threes. Three, three, three. Okay. So this whole thing, when we look at this whole narrative that's been presented as our history uh, with the World War II narrative and, you know, the Nazi party and the things they did and the the, uh, sake and name of eugenics here, uh, when you look at these ideas and you see that 333 there, 333 is a number that is associated with a, uh, a force, I should say, or an archetypal idea called Karanzan. Uh, which is in uh, different uh, occult lore, the guardian of the veil. So what you see here when you start to explore these ideas of the, you know the veil, uh, it's it's a revealing going on. So if you if you really look into these things, you will find information behind the veil that is not uh, presented in the historical narrative. Uh, so that being the case, the keeper of the veil here being Karamzan, the, the keeper of this information, that archetype is what you're exploring when you begin to look through these ideas and really delve deeply into especially the esoteric or occult side of what was going on in World War II. And the things that they tell us uh, don't really stand up uh, as far as um, what the accepted history is, because there was a whole lot more going on during that time frame than what we're told. And it was targeted at more than just that one specific ethnic group that this always gets targeted at, okay? Uh, So when you start to explore these ideas, you could see there's more to be found behind the veil there. And that's kind of how this uh, whole thing gets referenced in an esoteric type way, just inherent in those thought patterns. So you, you pointed out a good thing about the archetypes there. You did it on a previous bullet point. Just look at the flag, folks. Uh, There's a swastika that everybody for probably time memorial to come will see a swastika and think evil Nazi thoughts like all your history books have trained you to do. But you see, the swastika was around for millennia before that. It's still around now. I remember the first time I went to South Korea, saw buildings with swastikas on them. And I said, wow, what's that? That's when I looked. What does it mean? Um, oh, you can turn it to the left. You can turn it to the right. Uh, I'm not seeing any black ones. And you can see it's same as it ever was. These archetypes, these old Greek myths, these old 
things, these narratives and symbols that are in the human consciousness are latched onto and then put to work for not so good ends, I would estimate. The Eugenics Board of North Carolina was a state board of the state of North Carolina formed in July of 1933 by the North Carolina State Legislature by the passage of House Bill 1013 entitled An Act to Amend Chapter 34 of the Public Laws of 1929 of North Carolina Relating to the Sterilization of Persons Mentally Defective. This bill formally repealed a 1929 law which had been ruled as unconstitutional by the North Carolina Supreme Court earlier in the year. Over time, the board shifted their focus to include sterilizations. Their original purpose was to oversee the practice of sterilization as it pertained to inmates or patients of public-funded institutions that were judged to be mentally defective or feeble-minded by authorities. The majority of these sterilizations were coerced. Academic sources have observed that this was not only an ableist and classist project, but also a racist one, as blacks were disproportionately targeted. Of the 7,686 people who were sterilized in North Carolina after 1933, 5,000 of them were black. In contrast to other eugenics programs across the United States, the North Carolina Board enabled county departments of public welfare to petition for the sterilization of their clients. The board remained in operation until 1977. During its existence, thousands of individuals were sterilized. In 1977, the North Carolina General Assembly repealed the laws authorizing its existence, though it would not be until 2003 that the involuntary sterilization laws that underpinned the board's operations were repealed. Well, that took a while, didn't it? Well, they had to get something new in place. And the opening numbers of this little bullet point, how do I do this? Are we getting close to hour two here, Jason? I'm getting tired of hour one. We're at 47. Okay, so, you know, let's just go to the opening of the House bill. It's 1013. There's 311. And what is the public law? Done? 1929. There's 911 in code. But there's tells all the way through this. Who were the people being targeted for sterilization? Patients of public funded institutions. Now we're getting back into the idea of you know, your personhood, you know, this is not private things. These are, oh, well, the public's funding this. So you're somehow not a child of God anymore. You're a person or you're whatever the hell they want to do. Then they go on to show that of thousands of people, it's disproportionately black. And that echoes into the TV commercials that I see today, where there's a new TV commercial commiserating that only, I think it's 12% or no, 6%. No. 12% of public business is black owned. And as I began to think about that, I quickly sat over at the computer to find out what the claim of how many black people make up the country. And you begin to see the same old skewing of perception over and over and over. And so the fact that this was found problematic in 1977, but never repealed till 2003. What's two years before 2003? There's a new game afoot, isn't there? We don't need these old things that can be recognized as horrific, that can be repealed. There's a new game in town, and the new game will be, we'll just have people ask for what we want to do, or we'll coerce 
to get them to do what we want them to do. But Wayne, let's be careful how we close out and let's push to get into hour two. All right. Well, yeah, you could definitely see the game that's been played here. And it took them a good 26 years uh, before they realized in 1977 that, you know, this this wasn't a good idea. It took them until 2003 to actually do something about it, didn't it? So that, that should tell you something right there. The fact that they, you know, waited so long to actually do something about this. And uh, the numbers in this bullet point are, are very telling, as you pointed out. Uh, you, we see all these things uh, echoed later on uh, when the new game that's being played that started in 2001 is being played. So now they've, they've switched from uh, these involuntary type sterilization laws. Now they're going to go more towards coercion and towards things like, uh, you know, manufactured consent for these ideas. So they're going to get the public to actually buy in to the idea without having to force somebody to do it. Uh, so, you know, th- those are the games being played. So, you know, at this point in history, we could see uh, that they decided they're going to shift their focus from trying to implement these ideas in a way that people might not like to try to convince them this is something they should do. This is for their good. Or uh, they, they do so in very subtle, covert type ways. Uh, and, and, you know, just as a perfect example for this. We see now in the modern era, whereas uh, compared to what they were doing here then uh, with this targeting of the black community, so to say, uh, now they do it in different types of ways. Uh, What they'll do is they'll put, uh, say, a Planned Parenthood clinic or something uh, down on the the corner of a a neighborhood that's predominantly black. See, so then they, they utilize this kind of methodology for doing the same thing. But now it's not something that's necessarily like forced or coerced from people. It's a voluntary thing. And a service, Wayne, pointed out. Right. People view Absolutely. it. We'll, we'll bitch about all the uh, alcohol repositories in our neighborhood, all these liquor stores, but that's a service. They view it as a service. Right. And, and we've typed, by the way, just to quit interrupting you, but this service you're talking about is directly tied to the eugenics movement. Jason's drawn that line previously. Oh, absolutely. Margaret Sanger was a known eugenicist for sure. Uh, she heavily promoted these ideas and she was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And uh, also our boy, Bill Gates, his father was actually at one time, uh, the, I believe the chief executive officer at Planned Parenthood. You know what? Let's, let's, we need to close. We need to get out of hour one here, guys. <laughs> yes, um, we do. So, so let's let's quickly close out with the Overton window. Okay, let's use the Overton window as an example, and I'll just quickly frame it up. This idea showed uh, how when I first met you, I saw you describing the Overton window, which is how you and I came to be knowing each other through Jason. But the Overton window is it's more than a graph. It's actually a graph functioning as a strategy or an implementation device. In other words, someone building a model could say, if we use the Overton window, there's this percentage that the outcome will go the way we want, this kind of an idea. So it's more than just like a bar graph or a pie chart. It is that, but it's more because it's an operating method. What the Overton window does is when it's shown at the left, there's this idea that is shocking and unacceptable. This thing, idea, whatever it might be, is nobody's going for it and people are railing against it. By the time that window makes the middle headed right on the graph, it's part of society. Nobody likes it, but it's here. 
we all got to contend with this. Nobody likes it. We'll do whatever we can to end it. By the time the window makes it all the way right, people are buying and begging for the service. So add what you will about the Overton window, and then we're going to wrap up our one and actually get somewhere here. All right. Well, I would say about the Overton window, this is a favorite tool of people who uh, perform these social engineering feats in our world. Uh, they love to use this to to normalize things that were once thought shocking or just unthinkable, and uh, they they do so in a very uh, um, a very how should I say this without they do this in a very precise way. Let's put it that way. It's very precise, even though it is a general graph. Uh, they plot out the points on that graph in a very specific way. Small, little, tiny incremental shifts in the social consciousness. And that's how they do it. So they can steer public opinion of this thing through these little tiny shifts. And um, I think in hour two, we could probably show some examples of how that's been done. And I think that's where you were leading into with this. So uh, that's how the Overton window works. It shifts in tiny little gradual steps towards this thing that was one thought once thought to be unacceptable and now has become an accepted part of society, whether people really like it or not. And people will actually beg for it as a service at some point. And, and, you know, we could see the echoes of that in this last point we just covered here. A cell phone is a prime example of the implementation of the Overton window. And the more obtrusive and disliked the initial idea probably translate to the more degrees that will be between the Overton window when it shows up at the left and then when it makes it to the middle as now an established part of things people don't like. You could say this idea is not that shocking. There will be 10 degrees of movement between left and middle. This thing is completely shocking. Everyone hates it. There's going to be five decades of degrees between there and then. Jason, anything you want to add? I'm just going to wrap this hour one wherever it is. So we're getting into the 1930s, and now you're really going to see all these things coming to be in America. Laws all over the place, mass sterilizations, a whole lot of good times for the worst people in the world. So there are so many episodes that have tied into this because it is those groups of people which end up being associated even with the greatest sci-fi we all love. Uh, the stories of our lives, the music of our lives, <laughs> the movies of our lives, the poems of our lives, just all of it. Um, so much talent or things that we like to admire um, in relationship to where all these come. And it's not a lot different than what we see now, because what we're talking about now is services. Look at me. I'm a bit of a hippie now because I wasn't willing to accept a temperature gun to the forehead and a mask to get my hair cut. So I quickly decided, I made up my mind, that's a service I can do without, and I'll prove it. And anyone who sees me now knows I wasn't kidding. But this is what it's going to come down to. And this too is strategies within the idea of the Overton window. How many people, and I'm, not, I'm just going to make a terrible pun here. If someone was told, give us your phone or we're taking five years off your life. How many people do you suppose would actually hand over their phone? And that's an, a drastic example, but there it is. There's hour one of 347. We're going to come back in hour two at crow777radio.com. And we're going to be able to offer a lot more that ties what people are worried about now with this topic which we purposely put on the table, which will probably be delivered in three parts. This is part two. 
There it is, man. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Join us over at pro777radio.com for hour two of episode 346 with Jason Lingren and Wayne McCroy. There it is, man. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing. Come.